WFBN, Pinellas Park, W262CP, Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Moss Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. about how secure we are in our salvation. Don't get caught up and absorbed with, with, with this just from a doctrinal perspective or just from an argument's sake. Now you can debate with others and, and know what you're talking about. Don't get so absorbed that you miss the points. Our study ought to move us to worship the Lord of salvation. Don't remember eternal security and forget the God that gave you that security in Christ. See, that's the point. There sure have been a lot of vigorous arguments about whether or not we can lose our salvation. But God didn't give us the many assurances we find in Scripture so that we could win arguments. He gave them so that we could have even more reason to praise Him. The old hymn, Thank You, Lord, says it well. I like that chorus. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. When we think about what Jesus did for us, how can we take that for granted? How can we give him anything less than our utmost devotion and our highest praise? Isn't that a better motivation for obedient living than fear of losing that salvation that had been bought at such a terrific cost? Welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is guiding us on an in-depth examination of our eternal security in Christ. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve gave the sermon we're listening to today in 1982, so the sound might be a little odd now and then, but it's such a great topic that we just had to share it. It's part of an eight-message series, and we're just getting going today with the start of the fifth message. We've mentioned before that it's dangerous to let our personal opinions and experiences influence our theology. They might illustrate the theology, but they must not affect the theology. Here's Pastor Steve with a perfect example. little booklet entitled, A Child of God Can So Live As to Be Lost. And the basic proposition of this booklet, the basic point of this booklet, is that a Christian can lose his salvation. That's what the booklet is all about. And it's an attempt to try to prove that. And the author states... Very openly, the purpose of this booklet, right at the beginning of it, and I just want to read to you what he has to say. He says this, and I quote, The Bible teaches that a child of God, and he puts in parentheses, one who has been born again and has come into covenant relationship with God, can so live, and he puts in parentheses again, in other words, conduct himself in such a manner as to be lost, eternally lost in hell. The purpose of this article is to prove that proposition. Now, he says it, and we appreciate his honesty. He's written a booklet to prove that. And I ask myself, why would he write a booklet to try to prove that? Why does anybody write articles like this? It certainly is not to encourage us. There's nothing encouraging about that article. It certainly isn't to give Christians any assurance. There is nothing very assuring about that article. And it certainly isn't to magnify the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's not in the booklet. I read through the booklet. So why would somebody write a booklet like this? And there are many booklets like this. There are, there are a number of books like this. I have a book in my library like this, and now I have a little booklet like this. The answer is this. 
People write articles, booklets, books like this in order to warn us to live in a certain way. It's an attempt to motivate God's people to live God's way, to have a godly walk. And that's basically what he says at the end of his booklet. It's an exhortation to get going, to get moving, to to live in such a manner as to honor the Lord. Now, while I don't question the sincerity of anybody who writes an article like this or a book like that, the sincerity, I think, is beyond any question. But I do question, and you should also, his approach in motivating Christians to live more godly lives. And we've said this before, but I want to approach it from a different angle. What really, truly motivates us to live godly lives is a deeper understanding of the the wonders of salvation and God's faithfulness to us. When we understand how secure the sheep really are, that will motivate us to greater godliness. Now, we've been studying the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine that states, once saved, always saved. Now, that's, that's a disturbing statement to some. But we believe that's, that's what the Bible teaches. Once you're saved, you are always saved. You are eternally secure. And I really feel a need, as I was thinking about this, I, I really feel a need to warn us about something in connection with our study. I need to warn my own heart, and I need to warn you about it. We ought to be careful that we don't get so absorbed with the truth of this doctrine that we forget the Lord of this doctrine. Did you hear that? We ought to be so careful that we, in the midst of studying this and getting a handle on this truth, we don't forget the Lord. In other words, the more you learn about your salvation with all of its glorious security, the more your heart and life should respond with worship and adoration unto the Lord. And we we need to be reminded of this. Because oftentimes people can study this subject and come away just with some great arguments to give people who don't agree with it. And sometimes we can approach it just from an academic standpoint and to have our curiosity satisfied and to say, oh, I always believed this, I I just didn't know why. And, And that's fine. We need to know that. We need to know the truth. We need to be able to share this with others. We need to realize it's an important doctrine. But we need to realize that there's something more important than just knowing those facts. And I'd like you to see this, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now the question is, why did God predestine, which simply means he determined beforehand, why did God predestine or determine that we, who he chose before the foundation of the world, would be adopted as sons? Why? It was according to the kind intention of his will, but why did he do that? Why did his will and his kind intention express itself that way? Verse 6, to the praise of of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In other words, the very purpose of salvation was to magnify Himself and specifically the attribute of His grace. Let me say this. Salvation that you and I have is not primarily for us. You see, we're so man-centered that we think that my salvation is for me. There's a truth to that. But the bottom line is that your salvation primarily is for God's glory. 
for the glory of his grace. You see, for all eternity, starting now, when you're born again and you're saved, for all of eternity, we ought to be praising him for his grace to us. That's what salvation is really all about. In fact, he says in verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's what salvation is. To the praise of his glory, verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, speaking of the Holy Spirit, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. God saved you that you might praise his glory and specifically the glory of his grace. In fact, if you turn over to Ephesians 2, 5, just the next chapter, verse 5, says this. Speaking of our salvation, we were dead in sins and, tra and transgressions. He raised us up with him, seated us with him, verse 6, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the ages to come, that's all eternity, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are put on display for all the universe to see. God saved you and he saved me primarily so that he would be glorified by it. So when we study about how secure we are in our salvation, don't get caught up and absorbed with, with, with this just from a doctrinal perspective. Or just from an argument's sake. Now you can debate with others and, and know what you're talking about. Don't get so absorbed that you miss the point. Our study ought to move us to worship the Lord of salvation. Don't remember eternal security and forget the God that gave you that security in Christ. See, that's the point. And let me say this, that the more we learn of his grace the more we'll be motivated to live a godly life. Our friend who wrote the book about why a Christian can lose his salvation, he says, has written it to motivate us to greater godliness, but that does not motivate anybody to greater godliness. That may motivate people to keeping the law. That may motivate people to doing certain things, but that is not necessarily godliness. Just because I do what the Bible says is not necessarily godliness. Godliness is doing what's right for the right reason. It's not just keeping all the commands. It's, it's why do I do that? That's godliness. And that's what Titus has written to him by the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. This is what grace does. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." You want to motivate people for good deeds, you remind them of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, not a scare tactic. So I trust that our study, as we continue with this, will evoke in us a deeper expression of praise for the Lord and a deeper motivation for godly living. That's what it's all about. That's the purpose. We want to continue looking at the defense of eternal security. That's what we were looking at. We've already seen, number one, the debate over eternal security. The, the debate is the grace of God. That's the real debate. And we've looked at the dangers of not believing in eternal security, and there are many. We continue the defense of eternal security.
Now, we said we do not defend this doctrine by our experiences, by others' experiences, by, the, uh, by human reasoning, by opinions. Opinions mean nothing. Human reasoning means nothing in, in this connection. Our experiences mean really nothing. The important thing is, what does the Word of God say? I can't base a doctrine on my experience. I can't base it on my opinion. If you do that, then everybody's going to have their own experience or their own opinion, and that's ultimately what has happened in many Christian circles. You just kind of believe whatever you want to believe. But God has given us his word, and we judge things according to the word of God. Martin Luther knew this truth concerning the, the security and assurance of salvation based on the word and not how he felt. And someone wrote a poem concerning Martin Luther and his, his statements in this area. And the poem says this, Someone asked Luther, Do you feel that you've been forgiven? He answered, No, but I'm as sure as there's a God in heaven. For feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. Though all my soul should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater in my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll stand on his unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. So we make our stand on the word of God. Not upon our experience or what somebody else thinks or what you might think or I might think. It's really relatively unimportant what we think. It's what does God say? We examine briefly three concepts from the word of God that defend eternal security. We defend it from the Bible. Number one, we said the concept or the doctrine of no condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation at all. Even as Martin Luther said, whether I feel condemned or not, that's not the issue. If our hearts condemn us, there is one greater than our hearts, and that's the Lord. So if your heart, if Satan whispers in your heart, if your flesh says you're condemned, you're lost, you just listen to the word of God. And the word of God says there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus has taken your condemnation. That's what the cross is all about. We said another concept was justification. Justification doesn't mean just as if I had never sinned. That's only one aspect to it. Justification means God declares a sinner righteous because he's made that sinner righteous in Christ. It isn't that he just wipes the record clean. It's that he wipes the record clean and says, here's my righteousness. You can't get any more righteous than that. So that is justification. God declaring a saved person righteous. Righteous people don't go to hell. It's as simple as that. Righteous people are not lost. Now, this doesn't mean that we always act righteous, even as we studied about Lot. But it does mean that positionally before God, even as we read from Ephesians chapter 1, we are holy and blameless. We are positionally righteous before him regardless of whether we act that way. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, who were terrible in their behavior. He said, Christ Jesus has made unto you righteousness. Positionally, before God, we are righteous. Then we said, the third concept is the way God deals with the sins of a believer. He can't overlook the sins of a believer. We hear people say that. God will overlook your sins. No, he will not overlook the sins of a believer. He just deals with it differently than he deals with the world's sins. How does he deal with it? Two ways we suggested. Number one, he has given us a defense lawyer. Jesus Christ is our advocate. 
Satan is the prosecuting attorney and God the Father is the judge. And Satan accuses the brethren night and day before God. He, he says, I file a charge. That child of yours sinned off to hell with him. And Jesus rises or is risen there and says, but wait a minute. I died for that sin. You see, he is the propitiation. Don't try to say it. Just listen. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. He points back to the cross and says, but father, it's true that he sinned, but it's paid for. He can't go to hell. It's been paid for. He's accepted that gift. And so when we sin, he pleads our case. And that's what it means that he makes intercession for us. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. This answers the argument, what if I stop believing? There are some who say, yes, you're secure in Christ until you stop believing. Now, I would respond to say, if a person permanently stopped believing, they never believed in the first place. But what if you momentarily lapse into doubt? Does that mean you've lost it all? No. Because Romans 14.23 says, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So it's sin to be doubting. And which one of us has never doubted God? All of us have had momentary lapses. Some of us have had doubts of whether we even believe the gospel or not. When we sin, regardless of the sin, whether it be something as hideous as murder or something like unbelief, that still we have a defense lawyer. Now understand, I'm not advocating murder and I'm not advocating unbelief. I'm just saying that when we sin, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer, who pleads our case in, in the courtroom of heaven. And by the way, as I said, it is not dependent on whether you confess it or repent. Now you ought to confess it and you ought to repent, but you still have a defense lawyer whether you confess it or repent. Okay, so understand that. And I want you to turn to something that I, I just didn't get to last week, but Romans chapter 5. This is a tremendous verse. And when I saw this, I, I just thought, what, what a thrill. And I just wanted to share it with you. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Probably Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 or 1 through 11, is perhaps the uh, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible dealing with the security of the believer. But in, I just want to point out to you verse, well, let's look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Usually we, we take it only to that point. Usually that's, that's all we say. But verse 9 and 10 is precious. Much more than having now been justified or declared righteous by his blood, it means by faith in his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Okay, in other words, we never have to fear condemnation. We're justified. Those of us who are justified, which is every believer, never has to fear future wrath. It's already been taken care of. But, but look at verse 11. Or verse 10, rather. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, let me tell you what he's saying. If the Lord reconciled us when we were enemies, don't you think he'll keep us now that we're friends? Think about that. If he reconciled us when we were enemies, why do you think he's going to let you go now that you're his friend? You could say this. In one sense, the hard part was getting us saved. The easy part is keeping us. And But someone says, but, but if I sin 
If I sin, he'll, he'll let me go. He won't be reconciled. Sin isn't the issue here. Before, before you were uh, reconciled, you were dead in sins and trespasses. If that was the issue, God would have never reconciled you. He keeps us, he says, by his life. What does he mean? By his uh, advocacy and his intercession. That's what it means. Not that he's just risen again, but he's risen to intercede for us. He functions now as our great high priest. So we said God deals with the believer's sin two ways. Number one, he's our advocate, our defense lawyer. And number two is that God deals with us by correcting us. He chastises us. He disciplines us. Our sins are different than, than the unbelievers. They'll be judged for their sins at the great white throne judgment. We are, are judged in, in the sense of correction now. When I saw this truth about, about how God deals with believer, believer sins, I really, just last week, I had to put down my Bible and just praise the Lord. You see, that's the kind of response that these truths ought to build into you. Even when I sin, and God certainly is not encouraging us to sin, God has it all planned out to take care of it. Now let's look at some more biblical truths which defend the doctrine of eternal security. I think you're going to be thrilled with these truths. In John chapter 10, we saw the role of the Son and the role of the Father. We're in the Son's hand and we're in the Father's hand. You don't need to turn to John 10. I'm just reminding you. We saw the work of the Son. The Son holds us. The sheep are in His hand. And, and not only that, the sheep are in the Father's hand, but there's another person of the Trinity that we have to ask ourselves, what place does He have in all this? And that's the Holy Spirit of God. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with our eternal security? He has a lot to do with it. For one thing, the Holy Spirit is responsible for imparting divine life to us. This is called the new birth. That's what the new birth is, or, or born again, or born from above. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is what? Spirit. It's a comparison between natural birth in the sense of having human parents and spiritual birth. He's saying natural birth brings forth natural life and spiritual birth brings forth spiritual life. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty simple. When you were saved, you were born again. We hear that expression a lot. Most people don't know what it means. They think it has to do with an athlete whose arm has come around and now he can pitch again. But it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with, with the Spirit of God imparting to us divine spiritual life. And this divine life will not die. First Peter says that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, You were born again. Let me read it to you. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. That divine life will not perish. It's there for good. No analogy is perfect, but Jesus chose some of the best, especially when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again. Just as we cannot accomplish our physical birth, we cannot accomplish our spiritual birth. If we cannot, on our own strength, become a new creature, why would we think that we could become the old creature again in our own power? But just as I said at the start of the broadcast, life experiences shouldn't formulate theology. They should demonstrate it. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Verse by Verse is how we make his clear and practical Bible teaching available to our listening audience. If you'd like to hear Pastor Steve in person or meet him, he would enjoy meeting you. Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road. For more about Verse by Verse or to download today's program, 
or any of our previous ones, the web address is versebyverseradio.org. Watchman Nee came to Christ in 1920 in China. He was imprisoned in 1952 for his faith and, 30 years later, died in prison. He once told about a man who came to see him because he was concerned that he might be losing his salvation due to his constant sin. Nee said, Do you see this dog here? He is my dog. He's house-trained. He never makes a mess. He's obedient. He's a pure delight to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He is a total mess. But who's going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is my heir. And you are Christ Jesus' heir because it is for you that he died. This is Jerry Peterson. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. 